And that is what we're going to be preaching on for the next several weeks, the Beatitudes, the blessedness. Uh, let me just say as a little preamble that um, if you're uh, feeling sort of disoriented, kind of foggy, days go by and you don't know what happened to the days, days seem to run into one another, if you find yourself feeling like you're being tortured in slow motion, you're, you're, you're probably afflicted with this thing called being normal because right now that's a pretty appropriate thing to feel. It's a crazy mixed up world we're living in. So uh, take consolation of the fact that you are not alone. Uh, this is just the season that we're in. We'll get through it. So uh, last week, we started the Sermon on the Mount by talking about uh, why we should trust in Jesus to be the expert on life's big questions. Um, he's got the credentials, and the disciples lay out those credentials. So we reviewed that last week. Uh, now we're going to get into the meat of this message, and we'll start with uh, Blessed Are the Poor in Spirit, which is the title of this message. But first I want to set it up just a little bit. Uh, we mentioned last week that for Matthew, one of the main things he's going after is he wants to present Jesus as the fulfillment of Israel. Jesus embodies uh, all of God's hopes and dreams for the people of God, for Israel. And uh, that's why in the New Testament, it's portrayed as it, he is the embodiment of Israel and anyone who believes in him is grafted into him and becomes kind of an honorary Israelite. Um, so Paul says in Galatians 6 that he refers to the church as the Israel of God. And part of this uh, whole thing of showing Jesus as the fulfillment of Israel is showing Jesus as the, the new Moses. And so we find parallels between Jesus and Moses throughout Ma 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 Matthew's gospel. Um, so when Jesus goes up on the mountain to give this sermon, uh, Matthew is intentionally uh, trying to draw attention to the parallel between Jesus and Moses going up on Mount Sinai. And Moses received the law that then was given to the people. And this was the foundation of, of, of ancient Israel's life. Their life revolved around the law here. Uh, well, Jesus is now giving this new law, if you will. Uh, we are to regard the Sermon on the Mount as sort of being the equivalent of the, the, the law of the Old Testament. It's our, it's our Magna Carta. It's our charter. Uh, these are our marching orders. And uh, it's Matthew's way of saying this is, this is really important. This is super important stuff here. Uh, that Jesus is, is, is teaching. Of course, the, the Sermon on the Mount is not a new law. It's not a bunch of rules. This isn't like, here's the things you need to do to get to heaven, though some people read it that way, but that's not all its intention. Jesus is here just describing a way of life. Uh, when God reigns uh, over a life and reigns over a community, what does it look like? And the Sermon on the Mount is his answer to that question. These are road signs, as, if you will, that you're, you're, you're heading in the right direction. You're, you're, you're going in the direction of the kingdom, the reign of God. Uh, so they describe what life in the kingdom looks like. These teachings are, and some of you already know this, but they're, they're, some of them are really pretty radical. Uh, they're counterintuitive. They're not commonsensical. Um, they're challenging in a lot of ways. Uh, and for the first three centuries of the church, uh, the church strove to live like this. They took this as our marching orders. They, they apply to everybody here and now. If you're a disciple of Jesus, this is what you're to be, do, to, to be doing. But then in the fourth century, the church inherited from Constantine this, this political power, and they were invited to sit at the table to help run the Roman Empire. I mean, it was, in my opinion, disastrous. And these teachings that we're going to see here in the Sermon on the Mount are kind of awkward if you're trying to run a Roman empire. Uh, how do you run a Roman empire while you're still loving your enemies and turning the other cheek and blessing those who persecute you? No, if, if you're running an empire, you gotta crack down on law and order. You know, you gotta, you gotta punish wrongdoers. You gotta be willing to defend the borders against enemies coming in. And so, so these teachings were kind of awkward 
starting in the fourth century. So we find the, starting with St. Augustine, of course, uh, a long tradition, and I think it's a long, sad tradition of, of uh, theologians trying to find ways around the, these, these challenging teachings to soften a little bit. Or, so, for example, Augustine, uh, he noted that in the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll see this in a little bit, uh, you have a mention both of disciples and of uh, the crowds. And what St. Augustine taught was, and this became kind of the dominant view of the church uh, for a long period of time, was, was that the, the, these instructions on the Sermon on the Mount are intended for disciples, but not for the laity, the average Christian. Of course, yeah, they should aspire towards this, but no one really expects them to do it. Uh, so the Sermon on the Mount is for like the monks, the really holy people, the super Christians, you know, uh, the nuns and, and, and the rest. Uh, but not, 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 not for everybody. And then comes uh, Luther's, it's called a two kingdoms view. And here's how, how Luther thought. Uh, you can think of it as wearing different hats. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is, is the hat that, that kind of describes kingdom life. Uh, when you're wearing the hat of a kingdom person. But sometimes you got to take off that hat, Luther thought, because you play other roles. Like if you're playing a role in government or something, you might have to take off your kingdom hat precisely because you can't turn the other cheek and run a, a state. Um, and so uh, there's a time where Prince Frederick came to him and there's a peasant's revolt going on, rebelling against the feudal lord. And usually feudal lords just would wipe him out. Uh, but Prince Frederick, being a good Lutheran, came to Luther and said, it seems like it's a violation of Jesus' command to slaughter the peasants. Uh, what should I do? I'm a feudal lord. How should I do this? And, and Luther basically said, well, if you're wearing the hat of a feudal lord, that's the role that you're supposed to play, then you've got to play it well. And, and so he says, if you have to suppress that revolt, and he, Luther thought he did, he says, well, yes, it's sin, but if you sin, sin boldly, but love God more boldly still. Uh, that's his, his advice. You have two different hats. And then you have this view that came around the 19th century. Um, some of you have heard of dispensationalism. And this is a group of people that they divide different, uh, the history up into different dispensations, different periods. And God treats those periods all differently. The rules of interaction are different in each of these periods. And some dispensationalists say there's six different periods and some say there's seven or whatever. But they tend to take the Sermon on the Mount as referring to a future dispensation. It doesn't apply to us today. And you can tell it doesn't apply to us today because it's so hard. Uh, but, but in the future, when the Lord returns, uh, or at least more returns, then these things will be, uh, will be more empowered to, to fulfill these. Uh, I think the early church was right in saying, no, let's just take these things at face value. These are intended for everybody at all times. Um, the Anabaptists of the 16th century, there's a group of radical reformers uh, who, in, in the opinion of Woodland Hills, they really got some things right that everybody else was getting wrong, like the need to separate church and state and things like that. Um, but the early Anabaptists, they, they recovered the early church's view that this is intended for all people at all times. And I, I think they're right. If you look at uh, uh, the way Matthew opens up his gospel, Matthew 5, it says this. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them. So here's where Augustine draws the distinction between the disciples and the crowd. But both are there, and Jesus, it says Jesus taught them. And usually when you have an indefinite pronoun, them, uh, and you have two subjects preceding it, like crowds and disciples, the them refers to both the crowds and the disciples. He taught them. Crowds and disciples. 
And you can tell that that's what's going on by how things unfold later on. So for example, in Matthew 7, we read this. Uh, Jesus says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock as opposed to the people who build their house on, on sand. Know that Jesus here, and this is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, everyone, applies to everyone. If you want to have a solid house, build it on the foundation of Jesus Christ and on his teachings. If you want your house to sink, well, then build it on something else. That's, but it applies to everybody. And then a few verses later, he says this in Matthew 7, 28. Now, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished. The crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Talked about this last week a little bit. Jesus taught with exousia, authority, this, uh, this, this power that compels assent. He had people sense, the crowd sensed that there was this supernatural anointing on this guy. That's one of the reasons why many believed in him, didn't think he was crazy for the wild claims he made. No, he, he had this, this presence to him. But no, it's, it's the crowds that, 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 that perceive this which tells us that Jesus was talking to the crowds. So we, you just need to know as we go through this Sermon on the Mount, um, we're going to be treating it as our Magna Carta, as our charter. Uh, this applies to all of us. Uh, this is the, what we're supposed to aspire towards. Uh, we won't live this out perfectly, uh, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be trying to live, have our life conform to it as much as possible, all right? So let's look at the first beatitude, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Matthew, in his version, um, has only blessed, he has blessed are the poor, and leaves it at that. And most scholars think that Matthew added blessed are the poor in spirit, he was trying to capture more Jesus' intention here, by, by uh, emphasizing it's, a, it's about an attitude, not an economic status. There's nothing particularly godly about being poor. Uh, you're poor. Uh, but it's, it's an attitude that Matthew's getting at. The best of those who are poor in spirit. Now, what is it about being poor in spirit that is kingdom, that reflects the reign of God, or that's even virtuous? And we're going to find throughout this series, especially through the, with the Beatitudes, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be very important to distinguish between a healthy and an unhealthy application of these Beatitudes um, on all of them. And sometimes there's kind of a gray area here. Uh, so let's ask the question, what is it about being poor in spirit that's virtuous, that's a positive thing? I, what comes to my mind when I think about poor in spirit is, is kind of having a poverty mindset. Is that what Jesus is getting at? Because what's the virtuous about having a poverty mindset? Uh, my dad and my stepmom both had a poverty mindset. They came, from the, they came through the Great Depression. We heard about it quite a bit growing up. Oh, back in those days, we had a... And they both were terribly poor. It came out of it somewhat damaged, in my opinion. Um, my dad had to uh, uh, pedal ice at the age of 11. Uh, he carried it in like a wheelbarrow, an ice freezer, and would deliver ice to people to help support the family. Uh, my mom at one point told me, and this was kind of traumatizing, uh, her mom was Grandma Pacheca. I always thought was like this super holy lady because she was such a staunch Catholic. I mean, really staunch. And, and I just thought like, she's like in the holy status. Well, it turns out that when they got th went through the Great Depression, uh, they made moonshine in their basement. They had a, what was called a speakeasy, and uh, they were bootleggers. <laughs> what? <laughs> Grandma Pacheca, I'm surprised at you. Anyways, they, they made it through. Now, here's the thing. They both had this mindset, like, tomorrow we might not have anything. 
Uh, that, that was part of their, their poverty mindset. But they interpreted it in two different, totally different ways. My dad thought, since tomorrow we might not have anything, let's get what we can now. If you got money now, spend it because you might not have it tomorrow. My mom thought, since we might not have it tomorrow, we should save everything, hoard everything, don't spend anything. She rationed everything. I'm rationed everything. It's a, a, toilet paper for crying out loud. Who does that? It's like uh, you, you got two slices for one and four slices for number two. Sometimes you had to ask for more. Hey, can I have another one? See, see that be outside the door. Okay. Come on. Did they have bidets invented back then? That would have been nice. Although she probably would have rationed the water. You get once, never mind. Let's move on. So, so there's nothing virtuous about that. Christmases were really fun because my dad would just go overboard. He wanted to, we got money now, so let's, let's buy presents. My mom would just be miserable over the whole thing. And then when my dad was around, she'd make us feel guilty about it by telling us about all the starving children in the world. <laughs> so we raised, they raised a bunch of kids who tend to spend too much, but we feel really guilty about it. So there's that, that, that virtuous thing. There's nothing virtuous about that. Um, so that can't be what, 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 what Matthew's referring to. What does he mean by poor in spirit? Now, it turns out we have the phrases used in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is a bunch of writings that were found in a cave in 1945. And uh, they, reflect, they come from a community called the Essenes, which is a bunch of Jews who moved out in the desert just around the, before the time of Jesus. And they had kind of a monastery out there. And in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they use this phrase, poor in spirit. And scholars debate about the nuance of that. Uh, you know, because scholars debate about nuancing everything. But the gist of it uh, is, it means non-pretentious, unpretentious. You make no claims for yourself. Uh, Robert Gulag, after doing this really long research on the role of poverty in the Old Testament and whatever, he comes to this conclusion. Here's what poor in spirit means, he says. The poor in spirit now, as then, back in the first century, are ultimately those standing without pretense before God. Without any pretense, any claim. Nothing to brag about. Stripped of all self-sufficiency, self-security, and self-righteousness. That is what poor in spirit is. You can think of poor in spirit as being the opposite of being self-reliant. A person who's just capable of meeting their own needs. They feel fulfilled in that. They, they feel competent in providing for their own security. And, and they feel competent in their own righteousness. Um, they, they just do it all. And they really don't need God for anything. Now, they may believe in God. They may believe in God. They may even confess their dependency on God. But in terms of how they actually live, they totally rely on their own resources. Uh, poor in spirit is the opposite of that. It denotes God dependency and awareness of how much you need God. You can think of, of, of being poor in spirit as the opposite of, of, of finding your full life on your own. People who just get satisfied with what they can do, what they, what they, what they, what they can accomplish. A person who's poor in spirit... You may accomplish a lot of things. You may be good at a lot of things, but you're aware at some level, at the most profound center of your being, you're aware of your God dependency. You're aware that you have nothing that you, that, that you haven't been given. It's all been given. You're aware that every good gift comes from the Father above. Um, you're, you're, you're aware that your only fullness in life, your real fullness in life, only can come out of your relationship with God. So you don't try to be wringing fullness of life out of the things you accomplish or the things that you do or whatever. You can think of... Uh, being poor in spirit is the opposite of uh, being uh, secure by your own doing. You're secure because you got a nice 401k. You're secure because you got the nice house. You're secure because you live in a nation where you trust in their military. You, you feel secure because you're on the winning team or whatever. 
No, if you're poor in spirit, you may be on the winning team. You may, you know, that's fine. But you, you see through the shallowness of trying to find security in those sorts of things. Because all the securities you find in this life, your 401k plan and military or what else, uh, it all fades away. It comes to nothing. Ultimately, there's no security in that. The only true security is, is, is an eternal security and that you have only in your relationship with God. If you're poor in spirit, you're aware of that. You see through the shallowness of this world, the Tinseltown world and the bells and buttons and buzzers and ooh, look at this. You see through that, you realize your dependency on God. And finally, to be uh, poor in spirit, it means that, that uh, it's, it's the opposite of feeling righteous in your own doing. Um, it's the opposite of the person who and it tends to be religious types who do this, a person who's always comparing and contrasting themselves favorably with others. I may not be perfect, but at least I'm not like that person. You're confident in your own righteousness. To be poor in spirit, you understand that, that you stand before God by God's grace. It's by God's grace. Uh, you, you maybe think about trying to get right with God on your own effort as, as trying to jump the Grand Canyon, because that's about what it takes. And see, uh, you may be a good jumper. Maybe you can jump 20 feet to try to cross the Grand Canyon, and I can only jump two. But you know what? It doesn't make a bit of difference. You could jump all the way over and fall one inch short, and you're going to have the same fate that I'm going to have when I can only jump one inch off. It does, see, some can be more righteous than others, but when it comes to being right with God, we stand before God by God's grace and by God's mercy. To be poor in spirit, you know your dependency on, on, on God for your very being. You know your dependency on God to be able to be rightly related to God. You're a God-dependent person. Jesus illustrates the difference between the self-reliant mindset and the poor in spirit mindset. He illustrates this in a parable that he tells in Luke chapter 18. I'd like to read it. Luke 18, starting with verse 9, it says this. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, Jesus says, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week. He doesn't do that. I give a tenth of all my income. I'm a tither. But the tax collector standing far off would not even look up to heaven. He was standing far off. Wouldn't even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast, which is an act of contrition, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other, rightly related to God rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves, who make claims for themselves, put themselves forward like that, all who exalt themselves will be humbled and all who humble themselves will be exalted. Wow. So the Pharisee here, you got to understand, is a cultural hero. Everybody looks up to the Pharisees. These are the good guys, the holy people, right? In first century Jewish culture. And the tax collector is the... The, among the most judged people in first century Judaism. He, he, he's the, the person, persona non grata. No one likes tax collectors because these guys worked for the Roman government and that already made them hated by their fellow Jews. But they made their living largely by ripping off their fellow Jews, charging too much. And their fellow Jews had no recourse since Rome is running the thing and Rome is okay with this. So they were despised. They were hated. And so this Pharisee, he's confident. He's right with God because, because he's not like these other people. 
And it's important to see that this guy, he, he's not bragging. He's just, in his mind, telling the truth. He's being totally sincere. He's by himself. He's not bragging to anybody. Uh, he, he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other people. So he's giving thanks to God. And yet Jesus is holding him up as an example of one who trusts in himself. It's possible to trust totally in your own doing, but you still thank God because that's what you're supposed to do. Thank you, God, that I'm not like this. Why? Because of what I do, not because of what God does. It's because I tithe and I, yeah, I pray and I fast and blah, 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 blah. And so he's confident in his standing before God because of all the good that he does and all the evil that he avoids. By contrast, this tax collector, he, he, he stands far off. He doesn't even feel worthy to go into the inner temple. He stands far off. He doesn't even feel worthy to lift his, his head up to heaven. He just smites his breast and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's all he does. That's all he does. No claims, no high fast, no no, no contrasting with other people. Just have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that man went home justified rather than the first. That, that mindset, that self-effacing mindset of the tax collector is held up as being virtuous thing. And to see how radical this is, ask this question. And I don't want to ask it with a judgmental spirit. I, I, I want to ask it in a neutral kind of way, as an outsider looking in. But ask this question. Uh, which does the... Evangelical Church of America look more like the Pharisee or the tax collector? And I'm not trying to just paint all churches being one thing. There's a variety and there are different places, whatever. But on the whole, it seems to me that it tends to reflect more the attitude of the Pharisee than it does the tax collector. Um, yeah, everyone says that we're saved by grace, we're saved by grace, totally dependent on God. Yes, we, we say that, but it seems to me that there's a mindset of self-reliance, that, that there's a, an attitude of we're good with God and we're, we're okay and our needs are being met and things are going well because of the right things that we believe and the good behaviors that we do and the bad behaviors that we don't do. It's kind of a Pharisee mindset. We stand for the biblical values. We stand for biblical truth as opposed to all those heathens and pagans out there who have liberal values or, or, or whatever. And in some circles, Christians are so confident of their moral superiority that, that they, they, they go out of the way to pa- try to pass laws against other people's sins, not their own sins ever, because their sins are minor, of course. No, you, you pass laws against other people's sins. In some cases, they're so, so confident of their superior morality that they even try to get laws to... Make it so that they don't have to serve those kind of sinners. Because to serve them might look like you're condoning something. It's, a, it's an attempt to preserve the, your righteousness. It all presupposes that there's a righteous us versus an unrighteous them. The truth believing us versus the false believing them. And that, I submit to you, reflects the attitude of the Pharisee more than the tax collector. Um, and so that, 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 that self-reliant attitude where you have your own credentials that qualify you to be considered a child of God. Um, Jesus says that's not the attitude that reflects the right relationship with God. To get to the right relationship with God, you come to, come to the point where you give up on all of that. No claims, no pretense, no anything. You still, of course, want to believe true things, sure. Uh, and you, you strive to live according to God's word, sure. But you don't get life from that. You don't try to suck life out of that. That ought to come out of a fullness that you get from a totally different source, and that's just from God himself. Uh, what, what, what orientates your heart towards God is an attitude of total dependency. I need you. I need your mercy. I need your character. And what it means, folks, is that the kingdom community is supposed to be a community of 
tax collectors. Um, we're to have the mindset of the tax collector. Now, tax collectors were a pretty gruffy sort. You know, I, I'm sure Jesus isn't saying we should be ripping off people the way tax collectors were. But they had one virtue, one really, really, really important kingdom virtue. And that is this. If you're a tax collector, you're at the bottom of the scale in terms of social respectability. You're judged. And so tax collectors, they never judged other people. You can't look down on people when you yourself are at the bottom. And that's kind of the attitude that, that, that Jesus is recommending here. In fact, you find this recommended throughout the New Testament. Uh, Paul says this in 1 Timothy 1. He says, uh, here's a saying that is worthy of full acceptance. Uh, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. This is the saying that everybody who's a disciple should be saying, Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. It means you should see yourself as being at the bottom. Now, of course, you can't be the foremost sinner in the world because I am. Oh, wait, no, Charlie is. Or maybe it's Cedric, I don't know. But uh, you can only have one worst sinner if you're looking at a sort of an objective scale. You've got some measuring device. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's giving an attitude that we should uh, uh, embrace. And it's an attitude of, of putting yourself at the bottom. Because if you're at the bottom, you can't look down on anybody. You can only look up. Poor in spirit. Total God dependency. Now this isn't, to, this isn't about this kind of false piety that people get into sometimes where they think they're complimenting God by beating themselves up. Oh, I'm altogether unworthy. I'm so unrighteous. I'm, not, I, I'm, I'm a vile sinner. I'm nothing but a sinner. I'm scum. I'm maggot juice or whatever. And sometimes when I hear folks talk like that, and they mean well, but I almost want to slap them around a little bit and say, come on, you're not altogether sinful. You have sinful things in you, but you surely have some good qualities. You got some positive things. You got some gifts that you bring to the table. But even more important than that, I want to tell them you're loved with an everlasting love by God who gave his life for you, who thought you were worth dying for. So if he thought you were worth dying for and he's your creator and he knows everything, well, then you must have something going for you. You must be worth a whole lot. In fact, you must have unsurpassable worth because God just paid an unsurpassable price for you. To be poor in spirit isn't about that. Oh, I'm just, it's not about lacking self-confidence and feeling that you're a loser. No, it's just having the awareness of God dependency. Uh, it, it's the awareness that, that, that whatever else you produce, you're not going to get life from that. It's the awareness that whatever you produce, you do it because God has given you these gifts. And so there's this attitude of gratitude that's there. It's the awareness that you stand before God by God's grace because you can't jump the Grand Canyon. And neither can I. So what does a community that, that, that is full of tax collectors look like? Um, a community of people who are poor in spirit. I submit to you that it looks like this. Uh, we start with our brokenness. And in all other communities, you start with something else, a common interest or, you know, uh, an achievement or a, if you're on a ball team, do you qualify for it? There's, there's qualifications there. But in the kingdom, we start with our brokenness. We're people who are broken. We know that we're broken because the truth is we are all broken. Uh, we tend to hide this because in most communities, you know, being too broken is not a good qualification. We tend to hide our brokenness to, so that we, you know, we put on the happy face. We put on a, the facade to fit in, to be part of the life of the party or, or whatever. And that's how you start to learn how to be self-sufficient, how to be self-reliant, how to get self-security and how to be self-righteous because we're doing it all the time to hide our brokenness. But see, in the kingdom, brokenness isn't something that we hide. It's the price of admission. It's the price of admission. Uh, that's why Jesus said, come to me, all you who are sick. 
I, he says, I've come not to save the healthy who don't need a physician. I've come to save the sick who do need a physician. Now, the subtext there is this. Everybody needs a physician. It's just that some people don't know it. They think they're healthy. And those are the sickest people of all, Jesus is saying. Everybody needs the great physician. And so we start by acknowledging this need, our brokenness, our need for Jesus. So our, our message here at Wilderness Church has got to be this. It, if you're self-sufficient, self-reliant, self-secure, self-righteous, and you got it together and your life is just wonderful and perfect, uh, you're welcome here at Woodland Hills. We would love to have you. But you might not feel very comfortable because none of us are really into that. But go ahead and come and stand out. Uh, th th we appreciate being here. But here's the thing. Our message has got to be this, that if, if you are broken, uh, then you belong. End of discussion. If you're broken. If you know you're broken. You made a mess of your life, perhaps. You screwed things up royally. You've... Your life scrambled eggs, you can't put it back together again. You've made some terrible, terrible mistakes. You've got some terrible struggles going on. You've got some nasty stuff that you're wrestling with. Maybe you're in bondage to some kind of addiction. Maybe your life's over altogether, but you're just aware of your need for something else. Welcome to Woodland Hills. That's the only, here's the qualification. This is the place for broken people. Uh, and, and that's our starting point. That's what it, mean, it means to be poor in spirit. You're welcome here. Well, actually, no one's welcome here right now because we're in the middle of a pandemic. But when we get to back together, you'll be welcome there. And where we have our, some folks are having, you know, small groups and outdoor social distancing things. Well, it applies there. You're welcome. Wherever there are willing those people, you are welcome if you know you're broken. And if you don't know you're broken, uh, you're welcome here. But you'll learn that you are broken here pretty soon. We're all born broken. We're born in a broken world. We're broken. We're, all of us are broken spiritually. Being godly doesn't come natural for anybody. Some of us struggle with it more than others, but it, it, it doesn't come natural. We're, we're broken. None of us lives up to our ideals. Let's be honest about this. We're, none of us are as good as we could be. Uh, we're broken. And so some of us are born in this world broken mentally or broken physically. We're broken relationally. We're broken. We all need the physician. And that's what Jesus came to bring. Uh, now, the church isn't just a place for broken people. We don't just like wallow in our brokenness. No, we, we go somewhere with it. Uh, because Jesus heals us. And so this, it's be a community of broken people who are in the process of being healed by the great physician. Um, all of us need community if we're going to do that. If, if, if you aspire to grow, to become healthy, to, to look more and more like Jesus Christ, you need other people in your life to do that. None of us can do it alone. We, we, we need community. It's, it's all over the place in the New Testament. You cannot do it alone. And, and that community is there. Uh, it ought to be the case that you invite these people in on your life. You share your brokenness with them. Uh, we don't, I mean, there's a time and place for everything. I don't blab all my brokenness to everybody all the time. But I've, I've got a cadre of friends, uh, trusted friends that they know my brokenness and they're helping me walk out of that and I'm helping them. Those contexts are, are where all of the one another's of the New Testament should take place. These intimate contexts. It can be two or three people. It can be 20 people, but there's a community there. And, and in the New Testament, we're told to love one another and exhort one another, admonish one another, encourage one another, carry one another's burdens. There's 57 one another's in the New Testament. This is where they happen. You can't do that in a large crowd gathering, but you do it in an intimate kind of gathering. That's where it's appropriate if a person's invited you in on your life. See, I need people who can say, who know me well enough to know that something's off. And then who, who I trust to tell me about it. We're worried about something and to confront something. If a stranger does that, I feel judged. If they do it, I feel loved. 
I mean, I like it, but I still, I feel loved. Uh, that's the context where there should be, that's where you figure out how does the kingdom apply to your life right now? Because, and, and it, it takes a lot of living together, a lot of sharing, a lot of experiencing, and a lot of loving to get to the place where you have any wisdom about how something applies to someone's life, because everyone's life is very, very complex. To know what applies now, what should you work on now, and what should you let go? Uh, you accommodate that, because the Holy Spirit doesn't work on everything all at once, thank God. We're in process. So you have, you have to have a, an intimate kind of relationship to know that kind of stuff. Outside of that context, and everything the New Testament says presupposes small house churches. That's the context he's talking about. Don't do the one another's with some stranger on the street going over there and say, hey, I'm going to admonish you to stop doing that. They haven't invited you to give an opinion on that. So outside of this context, these covenant contexts where you invite people in on your life, um, as I always teach here, you're, you're allowed one opinion about people. And that is the one thing that you know about them, and that is that they were worth Jesus dying for. They have unsurpassable worth by virtue of the fact that Jesus was willing to pay an unsurpassable price for them. Uh, and, and you've got one job. Outside of this small circle of relationships, uh, you've got just one job, and that is to reflect your agreement with God about their worth by how you interact with them, how you speak with them, and even by how you think about them, even when you're not around them. Our job, love and reflect it. One opinion and one job. Um, it doesn't matter whether you like the person or not, whether you agree with the person or not, whether you think they're pretty or not pretty. It doesn't matter whether you approve of their behavior or disapprove of their behavior. It doesn't matter if you think they're respectable or deplorable. It's all irrelevant. All those opinions, shove them out to sea. You're allowed one opinion. That person was worth Jesus dying for. Uh, and now reflect that worth by how you interact with them. Uh, the goal is... is the, the goal is to get this to be a habit of thought, an instinctive thing. And it, it takes time. It takes practice. But to become a blessing machine where as you go about your day, the people you see, you just, yes, God, I agree with you. That person has unsurpassable worth. And that person has unsurpassable worth. And that person, I agree, God, has unsurpassable worth. And it starts to become more and more instinctive in your brain. And you'll find as you start to do this, that's where you bump up into all your judgments. You, you probably have no idea how many judgments fill your head. It's a yapping machine of gossip that goes on in here. The only way to squelch it is to replace it with something else, and that is agree with God that that person and that person, every person you confront has unsurpassable worth. Whether they're nice to you or mean to you is irrelevant. Your job as a kingdom person is always the same. Become poor in spirit. You can think of it like this. Uh, Paul says, do everything in love. 1 Corinthians 16, 14. Do everything in love. Well, having an opinion is, is doing something. And Paul says that opinion's got to be about love. It's got to be about love. Train your brain to do that. And see, if, if, if we here as a community, Woodland Hills, when we finally come together again, whenever that will be, but even as you gather in smaller circles if you're doing that, uh, or online, if we're doing this, if we are poor in spirit, it would be impossible, impossible, impossible for anyone, anybody to come into our fellowship and feel judged by us, to feel anything other than welcomed by us. Because... If they're broken, and they are, then they're welcome. It would feel impossible. That is the goal we have to aspire towards. So I, I, I encourage you to ask the Spirit to search your heart. Search me, O oh God, because we don't usually know ourselves very well. Uh, and, and ask the question, um, are you living life on your own strength? Are you self-reliant? Uh, what, what part of your life reflects dependency on God? Do you stand in your own righteousness? Do you compare and contrast? Search your heart. Ask the Spirit to search your heart. 
And then ask, ask the Spirit to make you more dependent, more aware of, of how everything you have comes from God, more aware of how you stand before God by God's grace. Apart from Christ, you are as lost as, as Adolf Hitler or anybody else. Um, be aware of that and cultivate that mindset and become a blessing machine. Okay, I want to ask our team of panelists to come up here. Oh, I forgot to remind you to send in questions, but it's not too late, so send them in. And we're going to have 20 minutes of Q&A and whatnot. Uh, I am blessed to have Oshida up here. And Cedric, are you in the house? Cedric, you can come up here. And I will turn it over to you. All right. I'll go ahead and let us get, com get settled for a second. Let Greg catch his breath from that amazing message he gave us. Oh, thank you. So we have some questions that have come in. Um, some are, are wanting some clarification in some of the words you use or ideas that you put before us, Greg. Sure. And then some are asking us to give us some practical, like real life stories or tips or, or techniques on how to fully live into being poor. That's why I brought Cedric up here. So the, <laughs> so the first question that we had, um, so can you talk a little bit more, Greg, about this concept of, of unpretentiousness or, or even leaning into our brokenness as a state in for poor in spirit. Someone mentioned that it was a little hard to follow exactly what Sorry. you mean by poor in spirit. No, it was fine. But like, can you tell us a little bit more about what does that, what, uh, is there another word or another idea well, that we stand know, in? So like in, in most communities, there's an element, in, in fact, most interactions, there's an element of presentation. You present yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we do that because we want to be accepted, we want to be loved, we want to be respected, we want to whatever. Uh, so you make a claim for yourself. Much of our life is making a claim for ourselves. And all of our disagreements are because we have people making different claims. Right. To be poor in spirit is, I mean, there's context where you might make a claim for yourself or you stand up for rights or whatever, but the, the, it's, a, it, it's the opposite of that attitude. I, I don't need to present, I'm just me, I don't need to present. Mm -hmm. I'm getting my fullness from Christ, I'm dependent on God, and, and um, uh, that frees me to be honest. I, you know, really, I could say it's about honesty and vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Maybe it would be a way, way, way yeah, to rephrase it. Those are good words. It's almost the, the contrast between being a human being and like being a human doing. Exactly. Right? So are you, are you confident enough in your belovedness to enter into a space and fully be? I think that as is absolutely right. As opposed to try to do and earn. Uh, the, the whole fall, you know, is, is really an illustration of that. Uh, in Genesis 3, uh, the minute Eve believes the serpent and starts to think that that tree over there can make her full, that can give her something that God can't give her, mm -hmm. she, at that moment, goes from being a human being who just walked with God in the cool of the day and was okay with it, to now a human doing, mm -hmm. and we've been striving to get our life ever since. Right, and so that makes total sense that Jesus would start the Beatitudes there, like unburden yourself with this need to do and impress. I think that's absolutely. But get your belovedness and your worth. from. I, I think one of the most fundamental disciplines of the Christian life, uh, I talk about this in the book, Seeing is Believing, uh, is uh, I say in the book there, the most important thing for a Christian to do is to learn how not to do. Yeah. To, to just rest. Yep. And, and be okay. Go to God. You know, Use imaginative prayer to be in the presence of Jesus just as you are, warts and all, mm -hmm. and let him love you in the midst of all that because that is what convinces you that he really loves you and not your behavior. Right. That's when it gets in deep, and that's what changes us. So then the next question that I have, I'm going to ask you, Cedric, because I think, okay, gr that's great. My own personal quiet time, I'm, I'm 
I'm a being, but then I've got to go out in the world and I've actually got to like do things. And so there's this question that came in. So um, someone says, in their job as a supervisor, they have to sometimes confront and occasionally even reprimand employees who are underperforming at their jobs. Uh, can you give me some ideas of what it looks like for a boss to reprimand an employee in a way that reflects the employee's unsurpassable worth and does not look like them sort of being judgmental? Mm. Um, it's kind of like the, two, the Luther's Two Kingdoms philosophy. How do you, how do you enter into that space uh, with, the, the, with being poor in spirit? I think starting off um, just with the concept of you have the opportunity, God is giving you the opportunity to lead, manage, supervise a group of people. Mm -hmm. um, and that should be thought of more as an honor mm. um, and a privilege to be able to do that. that. That is a gift. Mm -hmm. I think um, some people don't necessarily see it that way, but yeah. I think if you start off that way and really cultivating that attitude um, that Greg was talking about of being poor in spirit, I think it will help. Um, so first of all, I have the opportunity to supervise a group of people, lead them in a certain direction for a common goal, for an organization, business, company, whatever. Mm -hmm. So I start there. And I think Greg brought it up earlier about that I have one opinion starting off with them, that they have unsurpassable worth, that God loves them just as much as he loves me. Mm. So I need to be thoughtful in how I interact with them, what I say to them, um, how I approach them. Yeah. I think that then moves into then being able to reprimand or um, provide uh, critical feedback is mm -hmm. important as well. And 1 Corinthians 16, 14, do everything in love. Mm -hmm. If I am doing my job and I am being a kingdom bearer, I am going to connect with them in a way where I'm being honest because it needs to be said, yeah. but I'm doing it in mm -hmm. a way where I am not belittling their worth. Mm -hmm. I am not trying to fulfill something on the inside of me mm. and, and pushing them down yeah. in the process. So I do think that a lot of times people aren't honest in their roles as managers and supervisors yeah. and it actually doesn't help the person grow, learn, understand and have critical feedback. Mm. So I think that there is an importance of doing that. But as Greg said earlier, everything still needs to be done in love. Mm -hmm. I should be able to say to someone that they're not performing but do it in a way where I don't belittle them, that I don't make them feel bad about themselves, mm -hmm. that it is a process. And um, if I'm doing my job as a manager, I'm trying to figure out what the problem is and what is needed so I can support them yeah. as we kind of walk along to reach this goal. That's kind of how I see it. Can I, Go ahead, yeah. Um, but I bet, I don't know if you've ever had to fire somebody, but, <laughs> but if, 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 if you did, uh, I suspect the person who got fired didn't pick up on the poor in spirit <laughs> loving part of it. <laughs> and, and, and that just shows, the point of making that is that um, it's not our job to convince people that we're poor in spirit. Uh, it, it's just our job to be poor in spirit. And there may be a context where that's not going to be seen. Because if, you know, if your boss just fired you, even if they were as nice as they could possibly be, and you know, don't think of it as being fired, think of being relocated. Or, you know, <laughs> some other job, but they'll probably... Yeah, they're, they're not, they won't agree yeah, right. uh, yeah. with it. And I, I agree um, with uh, Greg on that, that it's not necessarily my job to try to convince them that, yes, I'm really being poor in spirit right now. I want right. you to see that. Like, yeah. that's, that's not the intent of right, it, right, but right. it is to be able to still do talk to them, be able to act out my purpose and my job in love. 
Well, that's the power of, of power under, right? You know, when you, when you uh, from a place of leadership or, or authority, if you're in a role, like if you view that, if you view a conversation like that as a chance to come underneath them, like take your power and from a place of love and say, I want to I mm. encourage you to move forward. I think that motivates people more yes. than this power yes. over like, oh, totally. you're the worst. This brings me to a, a follow-up question that somebody that we have, and, and kind of taking it out of the workplace or play, like where there's dyna- like uh, hierarchy or hierarchy or dynamics like that, but kind of interpersonally, how do we, how are we aware of? Um, I'm I'm poor in spirit. I'm broken. How do we kind of uh, be aware that that could be uh, something that somebody says to just say I'm comfortable with staying where I am. Like I have no desire to grow. So um, I'm. I'm curious about one. How do we be on guard for that? Um, so when you're when you're actively thinking about being poor spirit, aware of your brokenness, mm. how are you aware that you're broken, but you want to keep, you want to grow, mm-hmm. and not just let that be your resting place? And then maybe a follow up question or a follow up thought: How do you lovingly speak to somebody who's kind of sitting in that space of yeah. like, yeah, I'm I'm broken and I'm poor in spirit, and Jesus says that that's okay, <laughs> you know? Yep. I guess I'll be addicted all my life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah just... Uh, yeah. I I, I, attitude. I, here's where I think community is very important. Because mm-hmm. um, a person who's in, in a position like this, they're suffering from a, uh, a lack of imagination, uh, a lack of a vision. They're not seeing how... They're not anticipating how good it will feel when you get out of that brokenness. Mm-hmm. Uh, how much more you're capable, how much potential you're wasting by sitting and wallowing in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, you're, you're, you're made for more than that. You're loved as you are and accepted as you are, embraced as you are, unconditionally, no ifs, ands, or buts. God loves you and we love you. Uh, but precisely because we love you, we, we know that you're capable of, of more than this. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I'd have to know the person, I'd have to be on the inside to get any more detail about that. Mm-hmm. And that's why you need the community. But uh, um, yeah, to, to, to be holding out that vision of, of what you could be, what God wants you to be, uh, that's what motivates us. It's the love of Christ that compels us. Yeah. It, it should never be, hey, you know, if, if you accomplish this, if you clean up your act, well, then God will like you more and we'll like you more. It, that, that's religion and we'll have nothing to do with it. Yeah. Uh, the, the, it's out of the fullness of love that we get up front that we're propelled forward to become all we can be. Yeah, that's good. Do you have any oh, thoughts? Oh, Shida, I was just saying, the, the, uh, the only thing I wanted to add to what Greg said is, growth and forward movement is godly, mm-hmm. right? So um, the, the idea, um, I'm, I, I was thinking about when you said about like, hey, I don't wanna go into management, I like what I'm doing, you mm-hmm. know, in my current job. And I, I, I completely agree with that. But in general, in life, outside of the workplace, I still feel like growth is godly, that God sure. wants us to learn, he wants us to grow, he wants us right. to mature. Like that is a part of the Bible, that, mm-hmm. that is what he's doing, training us up in the kingdom. So I, I think that there are some nuances to that, but in general, growth yeah. is godly. Absolutely. So that brings me to um, how do we live in this tension of we are growing, we're growing into the people God has called us to be, we're growing in confidence in our calling and our ability to be peacemakers, to create shalom around us but also hold on to that tenderness and that awareness of our brokenness to continue being poor in spirit. There have been several questions about like, you know, some people started out feeling like they're worthless worms and scum and and through a lot of work, Mm. through therapy and with the Lord, they've gotten to this place of I'm beloved and I have something to offer. 
But then the message of poor in spirit might feel a little confusing because then does that mean mm. I'm not grateful for the things that I yeah, have sure. or I don't have an ability to enter in? So how do you both kind of navigate that tension, living in that space of I am called, I have something to offer, I'm confident, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rely on the gifts that God has given me for the, for the good of the community, for the good of the world, but I'm also reliant on God for my wholeness and aware that I'm still broken. How do you, do you sit in that tension at all? I can start. Yes, I, I definitely do. Um, being able to have skills, abilities, um, things that I wanting to add value to different conversations or work and also knowing and feeling at times that I am either unworthy or um, there's even been more of a, you know, just history um, within the black community that I need to be thoughtful of my place, yeah. right? Mm, and yeah. so there's some things that go way, way back that I always need to wrestle with. And I probably overcompensate at times because I am wrestling with some of those things. But in general, it is attention. And I think that one of the things that helps me outside of being able to talk to someone like my wife and others that provide a good perspective, but um, Holy Spirit, I, I really do believe at times when Greg said that God doesn't work on all things at the same time. Yeah. I'm so glad he doesn't. Amen. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it seems to me at times and seasons that um, when I am going through different things that there seems to be more of an emphasis. And sometimes in certain seasons, this ends up being a little bit more of an emphasis that, hey, I'm calling you my son. I've, I've set you here. You have something to say or I've given you a talent, a gift and an ability. I really want you to work in this area and be supportive of that. And then there are other times when my eye really isn't, you know, on the goal. I, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling a little bit more in that ambiguous state that you mm -hmm. talked about yeah. where I'm having to think through things. I'm not necessarily feeling um, as worthy. I don't think that it's just a one off. I feel confident. I feel good. I'm poor in spirit. I move forward. I think that it is like an ebb and flow of life. Mm -hmm. yes. And we need to necessarily, like we need to see it as such that um, you can be up sometimes and then at other times, given the season of your life, you may yeah. not feel that way, but just that trust in God, being able to kind of help you navigate will be important. Yeah. It's good. good. I, yeah, I, I, I'm totally on the same page with that. I, I think about it kind of concretely, like when I preach a sermon, I want to do my best, uh, and I want to take whatever gifts I've got to apply it to this, and so I think about it, I pray about it, and I work mm -hmm. on it, and craft it, uh, and, and I think it's okay to feel good about that, mm -hmm. uh, and you hear that it landed with somebody or whatever, I feel good about that. To me, the dividing line is, am I getting an identity from that? Am I drinking from that? Like, I can enjoy that, and I like mm -hmm. the fact that it blessed people, but am I feeding off of it? it there's, th that's the difference. Yeah. Uh, am I giving myself, trying to give myself life? Like, man, I, I really landed land on that one. Yeah. Um, and, and as long as I'm, I, I, I can enjoy it, but as long as I'm not feeding off of it, I'm getting all my life from Christ, then I think it's, it's good. Yeah. It, it's, it's okay to feel good about it. And, and you're, if you're smart, you're smart. If you're a good dancer, you're a good dancer. You can play drums. Or you, but it, it's, okay, it's good to honor that and, and celebrate that and feel good about that and become as good as you can be. But uh, uh, don't get life from it. And, and there's always, a, 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 always remain aware that um, you have nothing that you were not given. I, I didn't like win a, uh, a pre-existent prize to be given certain gifts. Yeah. There's absolutely no reason why I, I'm me and, and not, you know, child going hungry in Haiti. And so be grateful. Be yeah. grateful for whatever you got. 
That's exactly what I was thinking of building a practice of gratitude yes. is really important keeping you humble and reminding you um, of your brokenness and also uh, somebody entered into maybe a space of brokenness to help heal you, to give you information, to encourage you to, to lead and lean into the gifts that God have give, has given you. And so just being grateful for the ways that God has, has pushed you along towards where you, you, know, you know, on that note, I, I, right at the very beginning of this COVID, in fact, this first message we did when COVID uh, hit, and we had a lockdown was on gratitude. Mm-hmm. That? And I challenge people to you know, be practicing gratitude because it is the key to happiness. It is. And, and, and so another way of saying that is if you're broken and you're aware of your God dependency, that actually is a way to become happier. Mm-hmm. Uh, now that we're six months into this, I'm finding that attitude of gratitude to be all the more important. I, I don't know about you guys, but I find myself complaining a lot. Oh, I am just, sure. oh. I have to fight negativity. Everything sucks. <laughs> and so it's like, I, I just this last week, especially been reminding myself, okay, start giving thanks. You gotta you know, go yeah. back to that. As this thing wears on and it could get worse before it gets better, be finding reasons to be thankful. Yes. Really encourage you to do it. I want to talk about weaponizing the words of Jesus, particularly these mm. words of Jesus of poor in spirit. And um, as a woman and as a black woman, I have experienced, um, people using these kind of phrases to kind of like you've said, Cedric, like keep us in our place mm. or, to, or to remind us uh, th- that we're maybe being ungodly if we're speaking up or if we're stepping into a role of leadership. Um, and so I am really curious about, um, can you give us some concrete guidance on like, what does poor in spirit look like for those of us who are, who have historically been oppressed or been on the margins and who are now stepping into our belovedness, who are now moving into growth and being invited to spaces where we can use our voice, but we're also trying to be poor in spirit in the, in the imagination of Jesus, like the way Jesus imagined for us being right, poor in right. spirit in our social location here. So do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, it, it used to uh, refer to it as being uppity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah if, if black folks were getting too not knowing their place. Um, I don't know. I, 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 I'd like to hear from you on that. Uh, and I'd like to hear from you on that. Because <laughs> uh, what does that look like? I mean, because it, it's, because uh, one can interpret this as, as, given the history of how it's been used to keep people down, uh, you could get in your mind that, that, the, that um, you know, even, even saying, you don't get to treat me like that. Well, who are you? I mean, is that yeah. porn spirit? So how does that work for you? Sometimes, uh, I was just thinking when we were talking, it's almost like mental jujitsu. Like the, the <laughs> thing, the mental acts that I think about and try to navigate, um, because that is true about know your place, you know, even subtle phrases or looks or, you know, why are you speaking up or who are you or where did you come from? Or they, when, when, uh, at one point someone said to President Obama, we got to put that boy in his place. In his place, yeah. you know, just those little... Yeah. The, and that wasn't even subtle. That was, that that, that was, was straightforward. <laughs> that was so I, I, I look at it as a process and really um, going back to the overall teaching of getting your worth really from God. It is a process because mm-hmm. it's almost like you're swimming upstream, so to speak, at times when you're mm-hmm. constantly being told either you're not enough, you need to be thoughtful, you need to stay in your place, but yet you're reading in the word and you're trying to get your life that, you know, I do have something to offer, that God loves me just as much as he loves you, um, that he um, He equipped me um, to be where I am and to do what I'm doing and I need to be confident in that. Mm-hmm. To me, it's a process and I feel like I ebb and flow at mm-hmm. time, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, Oshita. 
Well, I think for me, this goes back to um, one of the things that has been most helpful in, in me fully living into the spaces that God has asked me to be a leader or to speak up or um, so being confident in the gifts and the person that God made me to be in spaces where I have been told, you know, know your place or that I'm afraid that I'm going to be told know my place. Mm-hmm. I think that that's, that's a very mm-hmm. real, real uh, aspect of this too. So I think the, the thing for me is if I've ever been told like, know my place or I'm not being humble or I'm, you know, being, I'm being too angry, but that's the thing that black women mm. tend to get a lot is, oh, you're so passionate, or why are you so angry, you know, if, like, I speak up. So um, the, the thing for me has been um, knowing that when I'm about to speak up, knowing that I'm, when I'm about to do this, um, that one, I'm beloved, but also the person who might be coming at me is beloved too. Yeah. And, build, and, and building a, a posture in me that, like, will want to pray for my persecutor, you know, I pray for the person that says, like, oh, to push me down. Um, so that's been really helpful in kind of keeping me close to God and grounded because I think I can start doing that shame spiral where I'm like, mm. well, maybe there's something wrong with me and maybe I shouldn't be speaking up and maybe there's, but then really like actually have to recognize that this person is affected by the, the principalities and powers too. So that first thing that's, of that's like good. viewing them as somebody to pray for wow. and then bringing in whatever I have to say from a place of love and not getting my sense of like, I, I say what the Lord says for me to say, or I speak up or I enter in that space in the way that the Lord asks me to. And then that's between the, that's, that's the spirit's job. Like I'm not the spirit. Mm. So once it's out there and once I do that, like I just was faithful in what I can be faithful in. And so kind of releasing that, because then I don't get my life from it, because it's good. the Spirit is doing it. And then I think the other thing that's been really, really helpful is having a community and having accountability. Yes. Yes. So yes. If, I, if, if there's something like I'm about to write, or I'm about to post, or like a sermon I'm working on, or an idea that I have, like having people that I bounce it off of and say like, hey, what do you think of this? Give their feedback. Because sometimes I find that they'll say, oh, I think you might be overextending yourself. And usually for me, I know if I'm like, overextending myself or trying to do too much is because I'm trying to add that little flair that I'll get life from. Mm. And so that's, that keeps me really humble too. Well, it, it, it just occurs to me that um, if someone hearing this message, if, if, your big, if, if your obstacle in your life has been that people have been you know, keeping you down or you're not good enough or you're not smart enough, you don't have a to anything or you're black, you got to know your place or whatever. They might have, all your life, a person could be spending trying to battle that, and it could be that the only resource that they have is to be building up their self-confidence mm-hmm. and, and, and assertiveness and all that. And they might have heard this message as saying, no, go back to the former thing. And I just want to make it very clear that that's not what I'm at all saying. If, 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 you're, if you've been working to stay out of that shame, this, this is not saying, no, you should go back to the shame. There's nothing shameful about being uh, uh, poor in spirit. In fact, really, I think it's very empowering uh, for all the reasons you just said. If I'm not getting life from you, or then I'm not getting it from your approval. Mm-hmm. And that's a very empowering thing. You don't get to define me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what then can free you to do what you were saying about you can actually care about them and love them. When you don't need their approval, you're in a position to be able to really adopt the kingdom stance. So it's, a, it's actually ends up being, it sounds like it's a disempowering thing, broken. What could possibly be? Yeah. yeah. But that is, it, it is empowering. It's almost like they go hand in hand. Your belovedness allows you to be fully broken, but your brokenness, like recognizing that you're broken, allows you to lean into 
your belovedness. Yes, like, amen. It's almost like the, the, these two things, like they're symbiotic. But it's, yeah. it's like you, you don't even know the meaning of grace until you need it. You, need yeah. it. you know, uh, yeah. if you're standing on your own, you can use the word, but it, you only discover the real meaning of it when you realize I am a sinner yeah. and, I, and yet he loves me and, and, and saves me. Oh, that's a good word for all of us. Um, so as we close, I want to remind us that we have space for us to process our belovedness and our brokenness. We have a prayer team that is waiting and ready for us. Um, and so there's a Zoom space, I think, uh, for you to go ahead and be prayed for. And um, and then the last thing I want to say is I just want to offer um, my my uh, condolences and my love to Delon. Thank you for being yeah, so thanks, vulnerable. Brother. And um, as I close, I'm going to pray for you and your heart and Gabriel's family, Gabriel's family. Um, all right. So and thank you guys for being part of this. I, 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 I don't know about you guys out there, but I really enjoy this discussion afterwards. It yeah. just helps you take it a, a step. Uh, right. And, and, we, and we have the gathering groups too, right? We have the gathering groups too. That's happening on Tuesday. And then we also on Tuesday have the MuseCast where Shauna and Dan and myself will be gathering together. I'm taking some more questions. So if your question didn't get answered here, don't worry. It might get answered on Tuesday. And pray about the tiny home. And pray about the tiny homes. All right, let me close this in prayer, friends. All right, receive this prayer. May you know the extent of your brokenness so that you can lean fully into your belovedness. May you be poor in spirit um, in the imagination that Jesus has for you to fully live into that poorness of your spirit. May you be confident in the gifts that God has given you and confident in the words that are placed on your heart. And may you boldly move into those spaces with a love that comes underneath and not over, a power that comes over. And Lord, we pray for all of those of us who are grieving right now in a multitude of ways, but specifically for our brother Delon and for Gabriel's family who is grieving the loss of this special young man. And so Lord, keep us, uh, keep us healthy and whole from, from this moment until we gather again next Sunday. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.